0: In all of our toil in everything that we do under the sun lord may it be to your glory alone the only way that we'll ever find joy or satisfaction is not in the things of this earth but in you alone you offer us a love and a joy that surpasses understanding so father i pray that you'd guard our high, guard our hearts in christ jesus and let us not toil in vain amen Ecclesiastes 2, and we'll handle 12 all the way through what Adam read, verse 26. Thus far, what we have covered since his opening poem in chapter 1, the book progresses through his empirical tests or his quest for meaning in the world. You remember that of his first empirical test is to study that of wisdom first. Is there ultimate meaning in wisdom? Wisdom. If we can think, if we can philosophize, will we find ultimate meaning in life by means of wisdom? The second pleasure, or the second test, empirical test that he underwent as we looked last week was that of pleasure. Having proved then conclusively by way of two empirical tests, the preacher surrenders. Neither one of these, as we examine them and we then experience them, take it from me, neither wisdom nor pleasure or hedonism will satisfy the heart's longing for meaning and authenticity. However, are they of no value at all? So the preacher reexamines for a moment. Perhaps there is, yet we've gotten carried away. We've said that meaning in life, certainly in the ultimate sense, can't be found in wisdom. But is there a utility purpose to wisdom at all? Should we just run around and be absolutely ignorant now that we've determined that wisdom can't solve all our problems? You know, live and let live. Is this our mode of operation in the earth? Why not? Well, this will be the point of his exploration with us this morning. Consider the preface to his inquiry in case you think he is getting off to a poor start or you are wiser than he, as he directs you, the listener. He kind of warns you at the beginning of his quest this morning that he is much smarter than you. So in case you think, I am going to dismantle this argument, and I'm going to be able to find the kernel of truth that remains, that allows me or vindicates my pleasure test that's ongoing with the world, or that it is better to be ignorant of life's complexities, he says no. No. No one is smarter than I am. So take my observations. You will not be able to undo them. Notice how he sets you up, the listener, that way to grab your attention in verse 12. At the very beginning, as he says, So, knowing that pleasure and wisdom cannot make all things meaningful, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. But receipt? you say, well, he just ended that, but he's doing it from yet another vantage point. Sure. So, it's not ultimate, but is there utility in it? So I turn to consider from this vantage point, wisdom, madness, and folly. And I will warn you. warn you, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Answer, nothing. Only what has already been done. You will not find a better observational skill than I have performed. Now, here is where I said to you and bored you to tears about six, seven weeks ago about the author of the book. And everybody, whenever a sermon series gets started and there's some sort of authorial um, uh, discussion, everyone falls asleep and finds it to be very ill consequented So what's the point? This is wearing me out. Ha-ha, I got you. Now you see, it still matters. It's still in play, isn't it? Because he's presenting himself here to you and his observations why they're guaranteed to be correct. Don't push the boundaries of what I'm putting forward to you. I put together a rock-solid case. How does he do so? By, once again, making reference point to himself being a king or being the king. And your mind goes where, Solomon? Solomon? So, as I won't get into all of the bits and pieces, which will once again bore you to tears, nonetheless, if you recall, I'll put forward a charitable judgment upon you that you do recall. I had moved from Solomon's authorship to say, indeed, he's using a literary convention here. He wants his observations to be received as clearly and as wisely as Solomon's himself. So he puts forward, receive these observations. Because since I am so very wise, such as the king himself, nothing can be done better or improved upon my observations if you come after me and try to redo them. I'm going to put forward for you the correct view. Now, as he moves forward, he is asking you, based on you perceiving him as wise as that of Solomon. He is going to struggle and strive against the utility purposes of wisdom. Notice the text as he begins his observations. Again, don't second guess them because you won't find any holes in my argument. But this is my argument. Verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And Yet I perceived at the same event happens to all of them. So here he begins with the quest for, is there purpose in wisdom or in folly? And he says to you, the listener, wisdom does get the nod. In other words, is it better for you to live a wise life or a distracted life? Is it worth it to you? Is there any functional utility to living the wise life? And he suggests to you, yes, there is a functional in-time utility to being a wise individual. Things are going to work out for you. Wisdom will serve you as long as the day is here. Life lived under the sun, the best course of living it is wisely. There is a utility purpose, and it is helpful. For example, the wise person, he says, sees life clearly. His eyes are in his head. He sees what's going to happen. He, I think we might say, reads the tea leaves. Right? He, he sees, he makes observations. He recognizes what's about to occur. He sees the boulder rolling down the hill and doesn't run in its path. He saw it coming. He lives with his eyes in his head. He's noticing how this is moving, how that is moving, how that is moving. He's trying to give a wise calculation to his life and putting his energies rightly in place. The wise person takes advantage where advantage is to be had. In other words, the wise person has proper form, structure to his life, and he has a rightful distribution of his energies. He's not running around like a chicken with his head cut off is another way of saying it. He's wise. He's calculating. He's prudent. And there is an advantage to living that way. Because you might be wondering that which is why he's addressing it, because he said wisdom will not deliver you. So you say, well, then why not just live in sheer folly? No, it won't go well with you, right? He already told us, you only have a few days. So how should you live them? Any way I want, I guess, because everything's futile. No, no, that's not true. Ultimately, sure, but in time there is advantage to living wisely. Also, in contrast, he compares it to the fool. And this is his observation, right? Because you see it right there in the text. The wise man has his eyes in his head. The fool, in contrast, walks in darkness. There is a basic utility to wisdom. And in contrast, the foolish person does not discern good from bad on multiple levels. He is a very unsuccessful individual. If you wanted to take this text and kind of explore the themes of madness, folly, and wisdom, you would go to what book in your Old Testament? You'd go to Proverbs, right? Wisdom literature. And you see the utility purposes of wisdom as she cries out to you in the streets to make wise observations. It's the mom and the dad teaching their little ones how to live wisely, how to make good decisions and observations, live with their heads up and their eyes out. And then the, the fool, however, he gropes in darkness, makes no sense of what's taking place, for crying out loud. He doesn't even know what's taking place, or even worse, he doesn't care for what's all taking place around him. He isn't considering the consequence of anything. That would apply to the level of spiritually, physically, financially, familiarly, His life is a wreck. They simply wander about, as he describes them, as grasping in the dark. So we've been presented so far with the king's observation this, there is a burden to living the wise life. There is. Isn't it better, as we say, kind of, again, as we looked last week, ignorance is bliss to some degree. To know what's really going on is vexing. To the burden of the wise is that they think, but they think too much, life is vexing, and they can't look away but it's better than being a fool who doesn't think at all. This is how he's speaking to you in basic observable skills for living. There is advantage. Wisdom gets the nod. But before we get too carried away and think, okay, we've undone the formula to living our lives lived under the sun. We're just going to live the wise life. We're going to invest wisely we're going to be patient people. We're going to be methodical in the way we go about things. We're going to plan our kids in perfect timing. We're going to get the right vehicle at the right moment. We're going to get the van when it's necessary, not before. Right? We're going to live wisely. That will deliver us. And he says, whoa, 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 that's, that, 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 that's not right. That, that's not. Before you get carried away that the wise life is the best life, let me draw you back to the meaning. Wisdom, even at its best, is momentary. Look at the text as he explains, lest you get carried away and walked out on my sermon because we discovered its truth. Slow down, take a seat, because he explores it in 14 through 16. The wise person has his eyes in his head, sure, and the fool walks in darkness, and yet, yet, and yet... I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, or as we say, then I said to myself, self, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Well, why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, This also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all of us will have been long forgotten. Here's his final concern, how the wise dies just like fool. You see, it's not that wisdom, once again, is useless, or being wise with your money and time and family planning and homes and careers is a useless exercise. That there's no reason to sit around together and plot your course or make your decisions prayerfully and contemplatively. It's not that there's no utility in that. But what the preacher is driving at is that even the wisest life that is achieved in time is not a life that transcends death. That's the problem. This he cannot get rid of. Do you notice he cannot shake this concern in all of his quests? That's the problem. That's the burden he's bearing. Even if we, let's say that I live in such a perfect way, no one ever disagrees with me. There's never a feather in my pathway. I have everything worked out, and it is perfect and what we say, Peachy King. I'm still going to die. So once again, what's the point? He asks it to the listener, perhaps in this way. Let's say that I suggest to you that it is a life that cannot transcend death. And you say, what do you mean? I, I don't get it. So is wisdom helpful or is it not? You have seem to say both things, that it is, but it isn't. What are you doing with this burden that you're explaining? And the answer is this, for the preacher... Well, yes, it's helpful. Yes, it's good in time. But really, if all we have is this time, then why does it matter? Okay, it might matter helpfully in time, but if both the people who waste their life and the people who are prudent with their life both die, then why take on the burden of being wise? Right? He already labored to show it's a burden to know what's really going on. You'll see that in parenting. You'll know that things aren't going great in the other room. And you'll just think, if I could just pretend like I don't hear it or see it, then I don't have to get involved in it. It's just easier that way. Oh, I didn't know they did that to you. But you did, and you saw it, and you must engage, and you must police, and you must be concerned with it. That's the point he's getting at life. Why bear that burden? Pretend you don't know. Live as though you don't. Forget it all because you're still going to die. Throw your life away. Nothing transcends death in time. Therefore, do what you want. Again, he comes back with the same answers you noticed in the text. He tells you, no one will remember you or the sacrifices that you made. In summary, he says, according to verse 17, look at what he says about living life at all. Once he realized this and considered it, I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Again, here in his summary of his thought, should I live wisely? Should I live foolishly? What brought him down to hate life as a meaningless burden was the realization that both men die. Perhaps one of the most, I came across this in some of my readings. Perhaps one of the most noted novelists in history that of Leo Tolstoy, if you're familiar, had what he describes as a moral crisis when he was in his fifties. I want to read you his account because it's directly parallel in time to what happened to the preacher. It's a work he penned after his crisis entitled, A Confession. He begins this way, There is an eastern fable told long ago of a traveler overtaken on a plain by an enraged beast. Escaping from the beast, he gets into a dry well, but sees at the bottom of the well a dragon that has opened its jaws to swallow him. And the unfortunate man, not daring to climb out, lest he should be destroyed by the enraged beast, and not daring to leap to the bottom of the well, lest he should be eaten by the dragon, he seizes upon a twig that is growing out of a crack in the well, and he clings to it. His hands begin growing weaker, and he feels he will soon have to resign himself to the destruction that awaits him above or below, but he still clings on. Then he sees that two mice, a black one and a white one, go regularly round and round the stem of the twig to which he is clinging, and they gnaw at it. And soon, the twig itself will be snapping, and he will fall directly into the dragon's jaws. The traveler sees this, He knows that he will inevitably perish, but while still hanging, he looks around. And behold, he sees some drops of honey on the leaves of the twig. He reaches them with his tongue, and he begins to lick them. So I too clung to the twig of life. Knowing that the dragon of death was inevitably awaiting me, ready to tear me to pieces, and I could not understand why I had fallen into such a torment. I tried to lick the honey which formerly consoled me, but the honey no longer gave me any pleasure, and the white and black mice of day and of night gnawed at the branch by which I clung. I saw the dragon clearly, and the honey no longer tasted sweet. I only saw the unescapable dragon and the mice, and I could not tear my gaze from them. This is not a fable, but the real unanswerable truth, intelligible to all men. The deceptions of the joys of life which formerly allayed my terror of the dragon now no longer deceived me, no matter how often I was told. You cannot understand the meaning to life, so do not think about it, just live. I can no longer do it. I've already done it for far too long. I cannot now help seeing day and night going round and round and bringing me to the dragon. This is all I see, for that alone is true. Everything else is false. The two drops of honey which diverted my eyes from the cruel truth of death is my love of family and of writing. Art, as I called it, they were no longer sweet to me. Family, I said to myself, but my family, wife and children, they're also human. They are placed just as I am. They must either live in a lie or see the terrible truth. Why should they live? Why should I love them? Why should I guard them? Why should I bring them up? Why should I watch over them? Then they come to the despair that I now feel or else just live stupidly. Loving them, I cannot hide the truth from them. Each step in knowledge that I teach them leads them to truth. And the truth is death. No sweetness of honey could be sweet to me when I saw the dragon and saw the mice gnawing away at my feeble supports. Nor was that all. Had I simply understood that life had no meaning when I was born, I could have quietly lived my lot in life. But I could not satisfy myself now. Had I been like a man living in a wood from which he knows there is no exit, I could have lived well. But I was like one who is lost in a terrible wood, horrified at having lost my way rushing about, wishing to find my road yet again. This man knows that each step he takes confuses him in life more and more. The burden he bears is greater and greater, and he cannot help yet to just continue rushing about. This was terrible to me, and to rid myself of this new terror, I wished to kill myself. This also is what the preacher says. When I learned that the same thing happens to the fool, as happened to the wise, I hated living. It's a meaningless burden. However, the preacher, unlike Tolstoy at this point, he says perhaps there is yet a glimmer of hope just a glimmer. Tolstoy's resigned himself to death. I I wish to kill myself. There is nothing. And the preacher says, wait a minute, maybe maybe there is. Maybe we don't have to just resign ourselves to death or this, what Tolstoy calls, stupid joke of life. There is something left. It's our possessions. Notice how he says so in the text. I hated all my toil, in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet who is master of all that for which I toiled, and all of that for which I used my wisdom under the sun." This also is vanity. In other words, the preacher is looking and considering life from the vantage point. Perhaps there is meaning in time. I know that I won't be remembered. I know my life's not that significant. I'm burdened and vexed by what I even know. I know there's not much gain to be had here under the sun, but I do wonder... If the way that I gain under the sun by possessions is that I leave them to another, maybe they'll remember me by the things that I left them, these objects of me. So if I accumulate possessions, maybe that's what you're thinking now. If you can accumulate possessions and you can somehow make something of yourself and then you leave it, yeah, sure, maybe your memory will pass off to the scene. But they'll remember you by way of what you leave behind. Maybe that's the gain, right? So so begin working hard, store up your treasures on earth, and then people will remember you by way of treasures. Because if you don't leave possessions behind, they will forget you because you're just gone in the night. There's not anything to hold or handle about you. You, you're, You're gone. But if you leave something, they can touch it, they can taste it, and they'll remember by way of it you. Maybe that is the meaning of our time on earth, the gathering of possessions but in fact the preacher says no if you think about it for just a moment the thought of leaving possessions behind makes life even less bearable think about it for a moment he says your toil is surely a waste of time if you think because you cannot control whether or not a fool takes over all of your possessions and brings them to ruin This is what he's saying. I hate work. I hated life, and I hated working. I toiled for all of these things, and I realized in a moment they might redeem my memory. They might prolong my memory, but never mind. I see now more clearly. I must leave them behind to someone after me. And yeah, maybe the thought is they will remember me, but what about this? Who knows if they will or not? Who knows if they'll be wise or if they'll be foolish? You don't know? He will be a master of all for which I toiled. And I used wisdom in gaining these things. I made sacrifices in time. Oh, this also is vanity. So his response to the thought of maybe a child growing up being foolish and squandering all of the inheritance left the inheritance disappearing along with his own memories. Verse 20, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did nothing to gain it. Oh, this also is vanity. And in fact, it is a great evil. In other words, he says, maybe you've heard this said before. I remember my dad saying it somewhat instructively, somewhat jokingly. There are no U-Hauls behind the hearse. Right? You've heard that. People make that saying. And this breaks the preacher's heart. It made him feel like there is no purpose in living. I might leave it to some idiot kid of mine. He'll probably blow it and ruin it. Best shot is he does something decent with it. I mean, you know, your dad spent all kinds of effort getting that. I worked day and night for that. I thought you'd do something with it, and you burned it to the ground oh man, I hate life. It gave me up to despair. This is the response of the preacher that he can't grab a quick U-Haul and take his stuff lest his kids burn it to the ground. Continue with his response. You notice in the text, he moves forward and says, what has a man From all the toil and striving of heart, right? I mean, you put everything you've got into building something significant for yourself and for your family. You you put all that you are into it. I mean, every day you get up and you go to work, You, you try to live wisely. And again, there's some utility to that, but really, what does it matter? Because what do you have? Really, what do you hold on to? All the toil and striving of your heart. Have you ever had a broken heart experience? A difficulty in your life? Something a bit more significant than a feather in your pathway. And your heart is breaking over it. You're working at it. You're pushing through it. And the pastor stops you in the middle and says, why? What do you think you're going to get out of it? For him at this point in his analysis of what he says to you, You're not going to get anything out of it. Verse 23, he says, for all his days, all this work, all this pressure, your days are simply full of sorrow. Your work, what you do with your life here and now, what is it to you? It's a vexation. Think about it. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he pushes the doubt and the darkness yet even further to you this morning to say to you, maybe I overstepped the way I explained it the first time. That is, he's been using the term, as you recall, since the opening of the book, gain, 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 gain. And he says, there's going to be no gain. And he says, oh, wait, it gets worse than that. There is gain. There is gain. And the gain is devastatingly negative for your entire life. Your investment in the exclusively horizontal will bring you nothing, he says, but sorrow, vexation, and restlessness. That's what your heart toils for every day. You live an isolated, horizontal life. What is of a value to you is that which is gained by something you can touch or control in exchange, money. You gain an asset. You work, your heart is twisted over your toil to gain yet another physical asset. A physical asset the Lord teaches rusts and decays. So you keep working and pouring your heart into it and hurt your family over it and drive yourself nuts over it. You're broken and you're burdened over it to gain yet another piece of rust. And he's saying, why? Why? What are you you hoping this transcends? Death? Yeah, right. You're going to die. If anything, at best, that object you've acquired, as it decays, is an analogy of a relationship to you. You're dying just like that. You can see it already, right? You're breaking down physiologically, even in your 20s. Like, like, you're on the pathway down. Don't fool yourself. You know, you feel it, you go exercise, your lungs are shrinking, not getting bigger. It's, you sense it. These objects you acquire, they're analogous to you. They wear out, you're wearing out. They rust and decay, you're going to end up decaying. So what are you working so hard to get them for? What, what's the point? Your heart breaks for what? This the preacher pushes you hard with. You're still going to die. So it is if I could push you one bit further to rejoin our man Tolstoy who lives out this very existence through what he says was an Eastern fable at one point in his life and now is reality. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, it was the simplest questions in life, lying in the soul of every man, from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which no one living could answer. And I have found by my experience, it was this, what will come of what I am doing today, or what I shall do tomorrow, this vexed What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is this. Why should I live? Why wish for anything? Why do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Good literary writer there, right? Repeat, repeat, Adam, repeat. Is there any meaning in my life? that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. To put an end to this stupid joke there are means a rope around one's neck water a knife to stick into one's heart or perhaps the train's on the railways. I saw that this was the worthiest way of escaping my torment, and I wished to adopt it. It drove him to contemplate suicide. Same with the preacher. I hate life. I despaired of my work, and my heart was filled with sorrow, vexation and restlessness but you perhaps at this point and you hear a man's story graphically portrayed by his own confession and you hear the biblical truth of the preacher saying life is a waste of time you then the audience ask this what do we do then give us a word of going forward preacher if you are the wisest of the wise and no man can untie your knot no man can undo your observations truly hedonism won't work Wisdom won't work. Foolishness, drunkenness won't work. And what are we supposed to do? Where do we go? If you are the wisest of the wise, give us a word of going forward. Should we go to wisdom? Should we go to hedonism? And the preacher says this No, no, not at all. I'm glad I arrested your attention and put you into a panic. I'm glad you almost thought of suicide. Because there is a solution of which no one can contend with, and that is, as he expresses in verse 24 and 25, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, not that heart-wrenching, vexation, sleepless kind of toil, a toil that is received, a toil that is enjoyable. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The solution for the preacher. The solution to the vexation of life and the sorrow of foolishness. But the emptiness of wisdom to transcend death. His word to you this morning is to enjoy your life. But enjoy it truly. How does one enjoy their life? This morning, tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. Oh, wait. There's another Thursday morning. There's another Friday morning. Saturday. Back at Sunday. Now there's back at another Monday. And there's Tuesday. Oh, yeah, right. This thing keeps going round and round. How, how, how do I enjoy it? What, what do I do with it? Is it a waste of space and purpose and meaningless? No. Do enjoy it. And this is how by faith this too, my lot in life is from God. What happens here in the horizontal has a vertical impact and matters for all eternity. I don't have to be stoic and separate myself away from all of life's goodnesses. I don't need to somehow denounce every good thing that happens to me as all in vanity. Neither do I need to make it an idolatry. I can receive it as having been given me from God. I can enjoy relationships with friends as meaningful in time. I can enjoy my family as meaningful and of the Lord in time. I can enjoy going out with friends. I can enjoy my job. I can enjoy worship. I can enjoy these things that take place and fill my schedule Monday through Sunday. Or I should say Sunday through Saturday. And I can embrace them as meaningful because I embrace the God who gave them by faith. Notice a little bit different how Paul explains it. If you would, as we consider the conclusion, turn to 1 Timothy. As we consider the consistency of this testimony, also in Paul in 1 Timothy 6, he explains similarly the words of the preacher this morning. He does affirm that there are no U-Hauls behind the hearse. And in 1 Timothy 6, he puts it just about that straightforwardly. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. I'll begin again verse 6. Now there is great gain. There's that term again, right, that the preacher uses throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This issue of, is there any gain under the sun? Is there? And Paul says, There is great gain, and the gain is in godliness with contentment. Notice notice how it, again, indicates that in the concrete or the measurable, in the in-time relationships, there are goods and relationships and friendships to be enjoyed. There are blessings that are given, and yet notice how... You know, your handling of your job, your handling of your friendships, your handling of your family, your handling of money, your issues of living are handled according to godliness. That is, that how you live horizontally is meaningful uh, vertically as well. Notice how he says so with contentment. Right? You see it in the text. For, For there is great gain, it's in godliness. And that that godliness in your gains is reflected with contentment. That's receiving it well. Verse 7, notice how he contrasts. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... See, there's concrete categories. There's meaningful things in life. The basic necessities whereby we receive them by faith in their right measure. With these, we will be content. He goes on to explain those who went well beyond this and sought riches and gain for themselves brought themselves to what? Ruin. Do things in time matter? Is there a life to be lived? Or are we supposed to be monks buried in the hills somewhere denouncing every physical thing that exists? That would not be godliness. But to receive all good gifts in time according to the source of he who gave them, in other words, to live by faith proportionately with them, there is meaning in that. Not just for the here and now, but for eternity. However, once again, the preacher warns, the final word in Ecclesiastes 2 is if we reject this wisdom of living by faith in life, living before the face of God as He who rightly gave us these blessings to be enjoyed, if we shrug this off and we live a purely horizontal life, He warns you, for to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What is vanity? Gathering and collecting apart from God. This is vanity. Do you remember our Lord's words in the New Testament? That the little bit that he even possesses, right? He could collect all kinds of things and gather all kinds of things, and he does it on an an exclusively horizontal level. What happens to them? Even that little bit, the Lord takes away. It doesn't last. You want to live an absolutely fruitless existence? Spend your heart's toil gaining and gathering. This too is madness, says the preacher. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for a few moments around Your Word this morning. We consider the despair of life, that life, there is much to despair about life if we live it apart from God, whereby we can receive it by faith, steward wisely those gifts You give. renounce the vain gathering of items living physically and purely for the here and now, but to receive your gifts as goodness, to be content with godliness of all that you give and withhold. Lord, give us faith to live wisely in this age that is passing away, to make much of you and the gifts you give as honoring you and how we steward them. Let us not be given over to empty gathering and collecting, for it is vanity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.